Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today and as always, nearly uh, by my good friend, Jason Neal Patrick Harris Johnston Yellen. Jason, how are you on this gorgeous Monday day? <laughs> oh, it's, it's Wednesday. Sorry. I take that back for our listeners on this gorgeous Wednesday. Yeah, I thought you were going to go this beautiful <laughs> July day and then you just went with Monday. And so you meant Wednesday. And here we are, Joshua. It is um, quite warm in Virginia. If you're keeping track at home, I have had friends from Scotland email text. Some of them have put pen to paper and used the United States Postal Service to say, what are your temperatures like? And I have said they are warm, but they're not silly, they're not crazy for European listeners and those who use the centigrade. We have kind of been averaging about 30 degrees centigrade in Virginia. Sunny afternoon thunderstorms, you know. Your sunflowers get split in two by the thunderstorms. But other than that, tiggity boo. <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad to hear all that. You know what I'm even more glad Oh, I know. For? I know exactly what you're more glad for. We've got quite the episode. We have to join us through the duration of this seven-hour episode. Uh, we're going to have... Both are our very own Jess Lomas, Jessica Rabbit Lomas, <laughs> with us. Hi. Hi, Jess. Nice to see you again. Nice to be seen and nice to see you as well. And then we've got Christopher Swede Scott Hallstrom, which I think that's that's how it's shown on your birth certificate. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And thanks for having me, guys. It's lovely to see your smiley face. <laughs> no response from him. Why is Jason hitting on me in the first 60 seconds of today's episode? You're looking very handsome, Christopher. Thank you. He's got the nose, because if you think about it, last time he was on the podcast, Padcast, uh, you three were all uh, scrunched up in the back of a car as we were zooming around Washington State. So what he's really missing is the gentle reassurance from your hand on his knee. That's why he didn't respond. He's not used to it. <laughs> it feels a bit weird. I did also tell him... I did I'll also tell him he was hand. handsome when I had my hand on his knees, so, you know. Exactly. I was friends, missing the hand. We... It was the hand I was missing, and it would have just felt me a bit more comfortable <laughs> in the company. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll have to do with Jesse's hand on your knee for the duration of this <laughs> conversation. Oh, no. For the, for the listeners at home, my hands are in the air. <laughs> Nowhere near his knee. If this was... <laughs> And and she's she's waving them around as if she just doesn't care as well. Okay, that's, I've got my paging HR button there. ready. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I brought us here for for a very important reason, and that's of course to discuss Indiana Indiana Jones in the Dial no, of Destiny. No, I mean, by now all 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 four no, of us will keep, have keep watched the spoilers this. under your fedora. This is uh, this is an indie free zone for the you moment. Haven't seen it, Jason? Nope. Oh my I was God. Jess, Chris. Yeah, uh, Barbie. Seen the movie Barbie. Barbie yeah. <laughs> Did you like Barbie? <laughs> oh, Barbieheimer. I think it's Barbieheimer. Open Barbie. Yeah. Is Open so, Barbie yeah. the new AI? <laughs> it's chat? all in pink. He's called Open Barbie. Okay, so a. Three have failed me. You haven't seen Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And we all know that our listeners are desperate 
to know what we think before they spend their good hard-earned money to watch it and make their own decisions on the film. I'm not gonna do, I'm not, I won't even tell you if I liked it or not. Okay. But that's homework for next episode. I want, I want to hear people's thoughts. Anyway, the real reason we're gathered here is to talk about a subject that all four of us have talked about for seven plus, eight plus years, whatever. And it's a subject that many of our listeners think about quite often because they're likely spending good money via one of these services. But the idea is uh-huh. whiskey options. That's good. I was really worried we were going to continue down the film critic uh, route, which the listeners, the regular listeners to the podcast will famously know, and I've actually only ever seen a maximum of four films in my entire life. And they're not the four you guys have seen, so... Yeah. This would have been a really short movie. Is one of them movie. no Barbie? <laughs> no, not even Barbie. It's on the list. It's on the list. That's the week after's <laughs> homework, I think, right? Yeah, I feel like whiskey auctions is a much safer topic of conversation. A safe zone, is that a what you say? A safe zone, yeah. <laughs> safe space. Well, you you both saw kind of the inception of whiskey auctions up close and very personal, and one of you continues to live inside that ring day in and day out, and, and one of you, Jess, has stepped out of the ring and into the independent bottler's ring, which is another conversation for another day. But but in the beginning, the inception of this, what did you think when you were seeing the birth of whiskey auctions up close and personal? And if you can throw a year on that or an approximate year on that, that would be appreciated. So for me, I started uh, over 10 years now. Uh, ago and it was an online whiskey auction where we started and it all started with a very small about six seven hundred bottles a month and um, maybe the best way to describe it is that at that time there was nothing that was being done online everything was unofficial like you would go in you would raise your hand and you would win a bottle and you would go out mm-hmm. and uh, that was it however you could obviously call in and you could get your bids in this was the first time when someone have kind of put it together uh, in UK and what happened was that uh, you placed a bid. When you won that, you actually had a chance of someone shipping it to you. And I think that was kind of re- revolutionary at that time mm. to be in one in one place at one time. And it was going on a monthly, one every single month. At the same time as this, we also had eBay and you were allowed to sell in UK on eBay in the mm. beginning and that was a big big difference uh, yeah. a couple of my friends uh, that's kind of how I fell into it was that my friends were selling on eBay uh, I had just gone started university and uh, was kind of offered a job to work in an auction house so that's kind of a little bit of my background and uh, it really took off when when they really closed down eBay I think that was when it all stopped, mm. and that would have been 2013, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe just before. Just just before, and that's really mm. when it changed from everyone was selling a little bit. You would go over to uh, our uh, listener, have obviously listened to the Fesh episode, and you guys have talked about that. I used to see people stand in the queue, take a photo, and they will upload it at the festival in 2011, 2012. That still happens, mm. because eBay in the UK, you can't sell alcohol, but eBay in Germany, you can. So uh, if you want to see the first place that you can get festival bottles, 
quite often literally hot off the press from the distillery shop sometimes i've seen the pictures where they've got like in um, the cube. like on the uh, yeah either in the queue but like they've put the bottle on the wall outside the distillery and it's instantly up on german ebay which i think is... <laughs> oh, yes i feel like there's going to be a lot of uh writing contentions about feelings about this topic but yeah so that's usually like the quickest way isn't it but um we were kind of I was just a little bit behind you. I started doing it in 2013 and it was really just starting to take off. So I think the people were sort of getting to grips with the idea of you no longer had to be physically in an auction house. So we have one. Uh, in fact, we mm. had we did at the time have two here in Glasgow. There's mm. only one remaining, um, which they would divide up, you know, like they'd have a specialist uh, wines and spirits auction and you know and then the usual categories that you expect like you know household goods artwear jewelry watches that kind of thing so that, that's really where it stems from but there wasn't uh in 2013 it was a new concept the idea mm. of a a dedicated online auction just for um whiskies a little bit of other stuff but predominantly mm. whiskies was pretty much unheard of um and i'd say there was kind of um we were in the first one and then kind of a couple of others popped up not long after we started. But the early days of it were crazy. You know, you we would get people would come to the office literally from all over the world to kind of come and see what this funny little address was, what was happening. I've had more than, more than a handful of conversations with people who had flown in just with bottles in their suitcase to hand it in to get back on a flight to leave Glasgow on the wow. same day, not even taking in a... Swift half at the Bonacord or a cheeky dram in the pot still, straight back to the airport, back on a plane and go home again. So I, I think it's that as well. It was actually people would actually just fly in to see if it was real. Yeah. Because they, they had mm. because you didn't have the same kind of you have a bit of review websites today, but even back then you wouldn't really see people talking about it no. in the same way as we see today, like Trustpilot or anything like that. It, FIFA. I was sure. I was always fascinated by people uh, who had I yeah. mean like I don't know if either of you two I mean I've, I don't think we ever had anyone come from America but definitely from mainland Europe and we are obviously talking pre-Brexit era so slight and pre-COVID and sort of slightly different aviation times but yeah that people would come from mainland Europe and just because they kind of they couldn't they also couldn't really get their heads around it so rather than just putting their you know whiskey bottles that they wanted to sell and have arrive in good condition in a in a jiffy bag with to the auction house on it uh they would uh yeah come and come and check it out in person bizarre totally yeah when you start meeting these people so you you're talking 2013 ish for that and, and i remember here in the u.s too right there there was a period of time where where bottle sales were allowed on eBay and, and and that went away. I think that likely went away quicker in the US than than maybe it did in the UK. But there was always that German that German one that's been around since the since the late nineties. And they seem to be, you know, like the, the the proto auction site that maybe others sort of based their Yeah, their Thomas Kruger's auction you know house. I'm which to? now you've said that I've don't know if I can put a starting year on it. Do you know a year? Yeah. I think it was 94, 95, 97. Seven. No, it was 90. According to their website. <laughs> uh, Fact-checking us. Uh, <laughs> I think if you look at their website, and I don't think I'm being too mean when I say this, <laughs> their website is very much still based in 1997. It's got a... Even the new one. Even the new, it's a great auction and I visit it, but even the new version, which came out last year, still 
has a old I feel like it's a halfway house between uh GeoCities and a tartan carpet and a Highland house. That's the vibe. <laughs> and if you are under if you're under 25, neither of those references will mean anything to you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's got a GeoCities website feel to it, right? It's not um even the newer ones not so yeah, that there was there was a mm-hmm. pre-existing mm-hmm. one in Germany when we started working, um, but that was kind of it, um, and I think it's also because traditionally and even today the idea of moving bottled uh, spirits is problematic. Um, couriers don't really want the responsibility of uh, mm-hmm. smashy packaging. Um, the Royal Mail here, our postal service, certainly don't want to be dealing with wet boxes. Um, and then, of course, you have the question of like legality, making sure that the person who's holding the box when the postie gets to the door is old enough to be buying booze. Mm. And then you add that in with like mm-hmm. international countries where obviously in the UK you have to be 18 to buy booze, but it's 20 in Sweden and 21 for you guys in the US and lots of other countries have different rules. Plus mm. the import taxes. It's a bit of a nightmare, even now, when it's, I would say, probably much more commonly done and easily managed. Uh, I think, you know, that there was a lot of kind of unknowns and nobody really testing it. So mm-hmm. I guess in the early days, people just were staying in their little corner of the internet. If you think about it, other products, not just, you know, auctioned whiskies, things like there wasn't an Amazon, there wasn't online retailing, didn't really exist in the same way it does now. Yeah. Uh, so I think people just weren't used to it. There wasn't systems in place. Yeah, and no, I, th- I think as well, if we're thinking back mm. to, we go back to uh, Kruger when he started... Germany is a massive whiskey market. They had an internal market that was big enough to be supported. So he wouldn't have sent cross-border as much as he will do today. And I think that's a a really big thing that we kind of forget about. Because if you listen to old stories within the whiskey industry, there were so many auction houses within UK, they would have whiskey like on the sidetrack. And that's how you could get hold of some. Whilst I think what I kind of understand from friends, Germany was the first one. And because it wasn't a language barrier, because it was in English, it wasn't Google Translate. Like, yeah. you, that was how it was. <laughs> and it it was an easier way. And kind of shipping came down in price, I think, like boxes and kind of logistic. It was easier to start picking out a courier. Mm. Like, in that kind of 2008, 2009, going, like, going forward, they were more installment of, like, actually couriers would go and try to sell you a service whilst I think beforehand it was an inconvenience for them they saw the potential mm. with whiskey and obviously we have all, all all heard about the olive oil and the lava lamp that people used to send to each, each other <laughs> on all these other kind of things um, olive oils? lava I have to say while well, you said lava lamps I've never understood that as a description for a box like nobody I don't know you'd buy a lava lamp. Like, why would I be posting it across the world? Uh, oh, don't you dare say your other passion I is lava or, lamp collecting. Uh, <laughs> I may or may not have used that term two or three times. Lava lamps. Who's going to question? When did you last buy a lava lamp? I mean, like, I'm not. I'm not a member. I'm not here on behalf of the feds or anything. I'm. I'm just curious. It's a very dated <laughs> reference. I get the olive oil and I get the. 
um, what are the other ones we've seen? Homeopathic liquids and, you know, that kind of balsamic mm. vinegar. Anything that's a liquid, basically. It's probably, yeah, yeah recent enough. I want to say 68, 69, so somewhere around there. That's when I purchased my last lava lamp. I don't know if I even have ever... I remember my friends having a lava lamp and I coveted it, but I never... Maybe I should see if they still have it and if they want to post it to me. I'd be like, hey, just slap lava lamp on the box. Yeah. Put your 1960s Bowmores underneath it. Everyone will be like, it's lava lamps. No questions asked. Yeah. I think you've just hit the nail on the head. Everybody loves a lava lamp. Yeah. So so, so with, with all of that said, when you've got courier services coming in the door looking for the auction house business, did it, did it feel like it was legitimised overnight was was there an awareness on behalf of the courier service that this is going to happen, we might as well get on board with it? The reason I'm asking this question is it's an ongoing conversation here in America, is you can ship wine, you can ship beer, those can go across borders. Whiskey is a an entirely different business. Mm. And there's, mm. there's this kind of strange... Distilled spirits, specifically. Right, yeah. right. Right, and there's just this kind of hesitancy to move up into the world of distilled spirits. But wine have cracked the code and beer have cracked the code. Did it feel like the code had been cracked when, when courier services were coming in your door? Yeah, I think so. Like when kind of thinking back, there was mainly like three companies that really tried to get business from you. And it was because of before Brexit, you could send to all over Europe without a problem. Uh, so obviously being originally from Sweden, we have a monopoly. It's normally hard to get anything into the country. But when it kind of came down to that rule was that you could ship it in. You were supposed to declare it yourself that you had purchased this liquid and you would pay the tax. So for them, the way they were talking about it is, OK, so we have a network for you and this is what we can offer. So these are the countries we can ship to, and these are the countries we can't ship to. So there were certain mm. circumstances that you couldn't ship to certain countries, but it was very much of Europe is open, you can do business in these countries. So they would come in and, I think with anyone mm. that's working in sales, they promise you the world. <laughs> and it was very much promising the world. And you can kind of see it now with the couriers coming in today, the same companies, they're much more switched on the questions you are going to ask them, what the volumes they're talking like. They're, it's, it's a giant leap. Like before, I think it was mm -hmm. a much more kind of like, we'll try it and see who we can sign on and we start doing this. Whilst back then, it was really hard to kind of get a direct answer from them. And then you started working with mm -hmm. them and you would see what you will get out. Whilst today, they know exactly what they can do, what they can't do. Uh, Brexit obviously have changed the whole business, um, hmm. which has become fun in my today-to-day -to -day work. But uh, <laughs> back then, it was literally you could you people would pay the taxes, you would send it out, and then everything got kind of got resolved by the courier, and it would be delivered. I think as well, there's um, there's definitely been a shift when you have conversations with these couriers. I think in the UK, it's not. I think it's not seen differently, really, between shipping spirits to wine to beer 
I think that was more about concern about safely shipping liquids because we in the UK, our licensing isn't quite as strange as the US, so we don't divide it up in quite the same way. The questions were about how are you packing this? What happens if it gets broken? How does it get replaced? We don't divide the sales sure. in quite the same way because what you're talking about with uh, DTC, DTC for like uh, wines and beers is still all very much tied in like post-prohibition, the three-tier system. It's it's tied to a system we don't have here in the UK. Um, it, mm-hmm. Like, for example, it's not illegal to send um, alcohol in the post here. There are a few little asterisks there that are to do with like sizes and how much. In the same way, it's also not illegal to mm-hmm. send it into the UK to have it cross the UK border. You're going to get charged some taxes, but it's not illegal. You know, assuming you're mm-hmm. sending somebody who's old enough to purchase booze, whereas obviously most other countries sure. uh, who have got traditionally much stricter alcohol rules, so like Sweden and like the US, it's not quite so fast and easy. There's a couple of other questions they ask apart from, and can we have our tax money, please? So I, I don't think mm-hmm. the beginning in the early days of shipping whiskey from the auction houses was necessarily about legitimizing it. I think it was about performing a service that not many people had asked for before. So when we would ask questions, more often than not, it was a, well, I'll look into it and come back to you because honestly, we couldn't say one way or another, <laughs> uh, which is something I spent a lot of time playing around with being like, can we do this? Uh, well, we haven't heard no, so we're just going to... We'll test that until somebody comes back and says, "Uh, listen here, that's a no. Okay, well, we'll write that down and we've learned that lesson. So it's maybe not quite the same way as I think, and that's probably why auctions worked so well in the UK is it became a hub. Not only is it a source for loads of people to access um, liquids, because we obviously get incredibly generous uh, releases of all sorts of things, plus you can go to distilleries and get things that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, I think it's also because the laws for it are <laughs> relatively, and I say that gently, relatively not as strict as something as complicated, mm. for example, a setting up in the US where you've got a big landmass, but lots of boundaries and lots of borders that all, once you cross that, have different rules on the other side. Whereas the UK was like, hey, yeah, sure, uh, we're in this really cool thing called Europe. We can send parcels to whoever we like. <laughs> we didn't really enjoy that, so we cancelled it. I don't know if anyone's told you about it. Yeah. So. Sometimes sometimes life can be too easy, I find. Oh, yeah, you need so to too. make it more difficult. Who likes freedom of That's, anything? Oh, yeah. Certainly yeah. not the UK. Yeah. So we've cancelled that. No, it's, and jolly it's good the challenges that's working that out for make us. Life. Um, so yeah, that yeah. gives you a kind of like ability to move things around, I guess, and that grows. But I also think that maybe the times that in the beginning... Whiskey wasn't as crazy as it is now. I think the people, the kind of people you're encountering Mm -hmm. at auctions in the early stages were people who certainly had very impressive and by 2023 standards, weep worthy collections of whiskey. But it wasn't, there wasn't drops coming out, you know, like distilleries weren't doing releases every month. It wasn't, they were, it was in smaller allocations. And I think more, I want to say kind of like, drip fed into the market uh, you're not disagreeing with me so maybe I'm kind of along these lines but like when you um, you were building up a rapport with clients and building the base of who was bringing bottles in to buy and sell quite often you'd end up with people kind of on both sides it wasn't just people buying to sell at auction they were 
they had bottles that they were selling to kind of trade up or diversify what they had in the collection or because they wanted something else. I do I do think overall, like, that is a, a thing that we'll, I'm sure we'll get into a bit later. But I still would say a lot of people, even today, there are still the guys that have these beautiful collections and they're looking for something they, to complete their collection. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, mm. I can tell it mm. here because no one is going to obviously tell me off. Uh, you're going to never complete your collection because it will be something new coming out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we keep them coming back. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, but I think it's it's a, it's very much of these kind of, you built it up with them for a very long time and you would see them, they would, they would buy and sell. And I think it was a love, pure love of whiskey and, that's how I fell into it and also why I've stayed in in the auction part is because you just meet some lovely people that they ha- will have stories they can tell you for weeks on end of like how this started yeah. and I think we kind of forget about that this 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 really big human factor it's just that instead of being at the big places Sotheby's and all these very fancy places like actually when everything moved online the biggest like number wise is that actually your average Joe could actually start coming in and buying things for a very reasonable price. And I think mm. we kind of forget that when we talk about auction is that the accessibility to these collections. Unfortunately, I have I've been in the industry for ten years, so when it comes to me and people were asking me, Have you had White Horse from the sixties? Have you tried Johnny Walker red label from the fifties? And then you're going, Yeah, in Sweden, we got grants, we got famous grouse. So yeah, so <laughs> that was my, what I could see. So it just opened up a whole new world in whiskey. And really, that's when the rabbit hole really mm. opened up for me. And that's why I have no money these days. <laughs> so. <laughs> that was a long way of coming around to the, I've spent all my money on 1950s Johnny Walker. I'd like yeah. It's delicious though. <laughs> Stop bidding on it. Chris is buying it all. You're making him very poor by contributing. Yeah. Uh, it's about I, to get a lot well. more expensive at auction. Yeah, thanks to One Nation Under Whiskey. Oh, look what you've done. You should have said you were only buying 1920s Jura. That would have kept them away from you. Uh, the, <laughs> I think as well, it depends on... It's a great point that you've made about accessibility. So I don't have, you know, like a family whiskey drinking cupboard that I can go into and reminisce and get teary-eyed about old Laphroaigs and old Lagavulins and you know whatever so to me and to us as we run whiskey tastings it's been a great way to access so that you can try these super cool old whiskies and you know you can share them with people you've got a group here together of people who collectively want to try it but aren't gonna individually go out and buy six dusty 1970s Laphroaigs uh, I wish we all could, but realistically, Man. not possible, right? So if I want to try all these cool old whiskies that people wax lyrical about, that's one way of getting access to trying your little dram of history. Uh, the next is obviously to make friends with people who are generous and open, very old, expensive whiskies, you know, which is always nice. Uh, we have met a few of those people, yeah. and I've always told people that I think the whiskey industry and collectors and whiskey fans uh, incredi- tend to be incredibly generous with their time, but also their liquids. You know, there's, I've had some amazing whiskies where people just, you know, open them up and try this, try that. So, but as I mm. can't go to a shop to buy a bottle of that, if you want to get in on that action, there has to be 
other ways to it and auctions are a great place for it so that's one of my pro tips I think for auctions because I know we're going to come to the uglier side perhaps <laughs> I can feel pro it coming tips. I want you to put a, a few more leaves on these branches you're starting to talk about what you were seeing in the early days and the accessibility that that allowed as we talk about the evolution of what was available via auction what point did you start noticing overnight flipping? Like you were mentioning earlier, the Ebays and in Germany, mm. and you could be taking a photograph at the distillery of the bottle you just stood in line to get. For the auctions, when did it start to become clear that people were going to Spirit of Speyside to buy bottles to put into auction? We're going to the Fesh to buy bottles to put into auction. And even was, I'm only saying this as somebody who watches the auctions from the inside did you see that rise is that really how things evolved i think I, it's always been there yeah i would like from day one i saw guys they went up to mccallum the easter elkis was dropped they were in the next day there's always been there mm. and if you didn't get it on ebay and you didn't get it through an online auction they would have been down at mcteer's they also is that what mm -hmm. we kind of keep forgetting mm -hmm. is that people living in these kind of areas, they will have customers. Yeah, like, they caught on to it pretty quickly. Yeah. If you live up in Speyside, then you are in and amongst the action, aren't you? It's not so... It's not a drive from Glasgow. Although, I mean, like, some of the stories we could tell you about people going to buy things. So, uh, talking of Easter Elkies, we know a guy who used to uh, take a busload of old biddies for their day trip out. He'd get a mini busload of old days from the local care home and take them up and he would give them all cash in hand to stand in queue and buy the Macallan Easter Alkies. and he uh, would buy them you know like a cup of tea and they all had like a chippy supper on the way home and they had a rare old day out they thought it was great he'd paid them for the bottles in cash so he got the bottles at the end and uh, they um, they had a, a great a great time so amazing uh, I'd, li I'd like awesome. to say now there's that, a movie in there oh, oh. Uh, the totally McCallum release stories like there's definitely I don't know if it'd be funny though I think it'd be a bit like the Hunger Games like some of the stories from the <laughs> McCallum's releases definitely ring true of that well yeah right maybe that's where it comes there's, from the inspiration you know, you've, actually you've heard... <laughs> <laughs> the, the Glasgow kiss actually started at McCallum yeah. didn't happen in Glasgow it's just some angry Glaswegians I do, I do feel like this is like the Angel Share movie but 2.0 like yeah. <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah, That's exactly what movie. I was thinking. Such a good mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. uh, with Charlie McLean playing 100% himself. Like That's what's great about the film. Everyone else is, and you're like, you've just transported him straight into that. Uh, yeah, I, there's, so, I feel like these stories have existed from the beginning. I think once the traction kind of started in the auctions and people started noticing that you could, you know, go and have a, a day out and you can make a bit of money off the end. I think it increased when that payback got bigger instead of it being, you know, a few pounds here and there, return on the bottle and people were happy. Suddenly there was like real money to be made of it. And that's because more eyes were suddenly looking at not only, oh, that's that whiskey that we want and that's the start of whiskey becoming an investment commodity Ugh, what a word but yet also there were people who genuinely wanted these liquids <laughs> that had another way of doing it. i mean like we've always said it if you are not on isla and you want a festival bottle of lagavulin 
again, there are still only a few options you have. The community is very generous and there'll always be someone, I'm sure, who you can say, I'll swap a dram with you. Can you get a bottle? Mm-hmm. Um, or if you just really want it, then the auctions are a great way to facilitate that. And I think as well, though, like mm-hmm. as, as kind of of these flippers, as we would kindly put them, as um, like they basically just go and buy there are kind of two two stories to that. I think it was not just about making money. Go home and sit home and you say, I made £150. What a lot of them did was they could they made, we'll say, McAllen as an example. Um, they went up to McAllen, they picked up a bottle, but they really liked Glendronach. They would put all that money they earned into Glendronach. So we kind of, mm. we're forgetting that kind of step of like, it was a way to access whiskies you can't afford. And I think we kind of forget it in the whiskey yes. community. You manage, because you live somewhere or you're there at that time. I also have heard about people trading and like before sending it off to auctions. Like I've heard all these kind of stories behind. And you more people started talking about it and you more clubs found out that you could buy from auctions. It kind of grew by itself. It was word of mouth. It wasn't in your face. It wasn't these uh, <laughs> now cask investments and talking about the hundred and thousand pounds, a uh, thousand percent returns, like mm. it was generally within the whiskey community, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the flipping flippers were always here from day one. They were maybe slightly different how they behaved, and I think that is mm. we kind of can follow through. And I think in the early stages, you had the first one, you had the third auction house in opening, you had the tenth one opening. All of them. It's because the demand has kind of grown, and also because there are markets that have they have sorted out like how you send into them, and that opens countries where oh we say to Taiwan for example. So when you send to Taiwan, the guys in Taiwan got exclusives that they started sending back. So that kind of all grew by itself. It wasn't mm-hmm. today someone put in thirty million invested into the market and then that's the return. It kind of grew because the passion is always to get to get the bottle that you maybe can't get hold of. So that was what kind of helped it, I Mm. think. And it was very natural. And we have seen, um, there have been a few jumps through the years, but you can have seen literally like a big jump in a distillery and stuff. But it has been steady, constant, steady, like kind of increase year on year. And then obviously when you know Reuters, the Financial Times, when they start getting involved into it and talk about numbers, that's when you have the next, mm. like, that's the really big investors. It might not, they are looking more from the financial gains compared to maybe in the beginning when it was a lot of people. There were, of course, it will always be one or two that uh, wanted to make money, but it was a lot of them that I met early on that they traded up. But this was a way to trade up. Yeah, I... I, I still meet people even to this day who find it hard to believe that you can auction a whiskey. I, I think because it's still relatively in the grand scheme of things a new concept. There's still plenty of people who only associate auctions with you know like Rembrandts and Banksy's and like high end art. They they don't really think about uh, the bread and butter of most auction houses is things like house clearances and people inheriting stuff they don't want and auctioning it. Uh, I think, you know, in the UK we have a TV show here called uh, Bargain Hunt and that's the same. They go around getting things and then they uh, auction it off at the end and they make sort of £5 here, £10 there. And I think people 
think whiskey would be the same. And there's plenty of people who genuinely don't understand that um, you could maybe auction whiskey and make loads of money off it. It's still a totally weird alien concept. So, I, yeah, it's um, it definitely has grown. And it grows, I think... Um, and it helps when you get people like newspapers writing articles. We had several people that I can think of who came to auction bottles because they'd seen, you know, oh, maybe whiskey, you should not just give it away to the local church tombola or the gardener who's helped you clean out the shed. You know, you could maybe make a bit of cash off that. And that was, you know, definitely there was a, an increase of people coming in and they'd be sort of sheepish like I don't know if I'm wasting your time but I, I wonder if this is worth any money and then they pull out a whole bag full of brewers and you're like yes we can help you <laughs> see so that that to me there's this sort of good side of auctions versus bad and when I say good side versus bad side of auctions I'm talking about the uh, the growth and popularity of of auctions and people's accessibility to auctions. Like my my neighbor's father-in-law just found some crazy old bottle of Four Roses and a tin decanter, and he's got all sorts of these other bottles. And so I'm going to, you know, help him and see if he can, you know, get some of these sold because they're of no use to him anymore and he could use a bit of money. So, so there's, I, th I think there's some of those good things, right? I, I bet you... There's loads of people who who put too much money into Bell's decanters that wish they could do the same with with what they have, but but then there's the other side of it, and that's and that's the the whiskey faking, which which I know you know the auction houses have you know some 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 really good measures in place to ensure that their customers, they, they're doing the absolute best to ensure their customers aren't mm -hmm. receiving a fake, that they aren't inadvertently auctioning off a fake. But I guess the question that's taking me so goddamn long to get to is, have you seen an increase to fake bottles as the popularity of auctions has increased? Or is it a much smaller issue than some of Would you like to take this a very about. hot potato? <laughs> Thanks for passing it over. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll have my two pence with in the end, but I think we should let the man on the front line. Okay. Uh, I think it's been exaggerated overall, and I think it's been from day one. I think it, it's also exaggerated that the whiskey markets will have crashed over 20 years now whilst it's been growing. I think that is a lot of yeah. rumours going around, and it's... I think it's one of the things that you normally say, um, Jess, is that like a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. Mm. And I think a lot of people point mm -hmm. a lot of fingers and saying, that's fake. I know this because I am a collector. I have collected so many years, but it's a totally different brand. I have been told that these are all fake by this guy. He works in a shop. I think that's where the problem is really starting. And it's a starting pointing fingers. The auctions, all auction houses have their training. They're like, it's such a thing of like feeling a label. You're looking at the cork. Uh, I won't go into all the details uh, because I will bore all of you. But, but also because famously listeners to One Nation and a Whiskey are fakers. <laughs> so they're going to have their pens out. They're going to be writing it down, yeah. saving it as PDFs on their desktops. They're going to be knowing how to fake yeah. thanks to you. But Exactly. No, but I think like Smart just people. overall, I think that it does happen. Of course it happens. It happens in every market in the world. You can only do the absolute best in every reptile auction house do 
have a look. And I'm not even joking. Like when something comes in, even like it could be a tear and you feeling something feels wrong here. It's a gut feeling. And right away you start mm. and like there are maybe misprints on the label and you're wondering why have this happened? And then when you're going back to 60s, 70s, kind of Gordon MacPhail stuff and you hear of all these things that have happened. Topical. Um which is like they might have like the press <laughs> might have swapped on different places and like we get we got in sometimes saying that's absolute 100% fake blah 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 and like actually the guy you're selling it you spoke to him you find out the whole story and you're like this is not fake like what you have done is you have taken an assumption and you have jumped it and you yeah. want to prove yourself for the rest of the people i think that with a lot of people I've spoken to and like underst- that really understands what is fake and not. They they have a deep knowledge and they have a really really good understanding of this is like a warning, like the warning signs of it. And yeah, it's it's not an easy one to pinpoint. I think is saying is it more today? Is it less mm. today? What is most faked in the world is your Johnny Walker black label sitting in a bar. And that's why they have changed those pores within them because you can't refill the bottle. Yeah, That's where the fakery have started from and that's where most people have made their money. Because it's, this is such a new product. Of course, they were th- like Macallan 30 in the blue bottle is, is uh, one of these uh, bottles that come up to mention when you talk about fakes. But that is not what... like If you're looking at the bigger market picture... Is a reason why Diageo is putting in so much money to stop people to refilling Johnny Walker red yeah, and black. I, I think that's a good point that the if we're looking at percentage of inauthentic whiskies, that's most likely where you're going to be. But I understand that sensationally the question is really how many fake McCallans have you had in the auction? There's a ton of different types of fake too. So we've got a fake where it's a straight up. Uh, the liquid inside is not even whiskey. It could be tea. It could be any other kind of spirit that's got a bit of caramel in it. And you've done your best there to, as a class A, top class faker, you've got a, you've tried to match your capsules and your labels. I think what's probably much more common, especially in whiskies, uh, which are going to auction houses, is that you're passing off. So it could be that the liquid and the glass and the capsule are correct, but you've got new labels. So... For example, you've taken a Macallan 12-year-old and put labels on that you're trying to pass it off as an older Macallan. The 30 that Chris is referencing is a well-known problematic, especially from one particular market, where the back labels don't match, and that's one of the giveaways. Um, Macallan did a release called the Anniversary Malts. So it's got like little tiny writing on it, and it's got a 25. And one of the one of the tricks that we would use when looking at these is it's known that the printing... If that uh, two uh, is printed onto the this kind of text, where the bottom line sits, that's sometimes a giveaway that it's embossed on the wrong height. So that's one of the known hmm. characteristics uh... that you're looking at. I think it's worth pointing out that most auction houses now are handling pretty high volumes of bottles. Just by kind of handling and being around whiskies, you get a feel for what doesn't feel right so while Chris is talking about it being a gut instinct there quite often is something that just makes you think "Mm, that's not you know that's not quite right that's not 
that's not the same as so you can then go and say well do we have another one in the warehouse let's go say do these two match are they are they known to be for different markets so maybe there are going to be some different marks on those labels yeah. are they from the same era so that paper should feel the same like I used to regularly get laughed at because I'd be like walking around the warehouse touching these labels because yeah. paper is something that's actually I mean like if you're just like okay we'll print it put it on the bottle but actually if you are a collector you're going to know how those bottles and labels feel in your hands so that can be another thing that makes you think mm, there's something not quite right here lots of brands uh, especially now the high-end ones are doing much more to future-proof themselves like McAllen heavily invested in the hologram stickers that they have um, there's people who are doing like full traceability on their labels, printing on the back that mm, gives you mm. details. Ardbeg have the laser etching on the glass, which the Ardbeg project was fantastic for. That would quite often help you because that laser etching on the bottle, you can't change. So when you go to somebody like the Ardbeg project's website, when you look up that laser code, if it says that it should be an Arinam Besht, but it's got a 1977 Ardbeg label on the bottle, then you know there's something not right there. So it's about kind of getting used to what you're handling. I guess like anything, it's, it comes from practice. It's not an exact science by any measure. And I, I think most reputable auction houses are always willing to have an, a conversation with you. If you're not comfortable, take that bottle back off you. Or they're within their rights that if they think you're turning something in that doesn't look right, they're also within their rights to send it back to you and refuse to auction it. Yeah, and I think that is something that people that are not talked about because it's not sensational. If you have a doubt, you don't want to sell something because your auction house is also on the line. Like when it comes to these things, I think that you think about it and going, am I willing to sacrifice this? Because I maybe know, like mm. you've like when it comes to selling, you want to be sure that you, you yeah. are selling the right thing. You yeah. don't go in there to think, do you know something? I think of my stock, 10% is probably legit and 90 isn't. You know, like you really, there are things that I've sent back just because A is a question mark. And it's, it's you do a lot of question and then that's when the questionnaire comes out. You're finding out how they acquired the bottle and you just start ticking off a big tick off box. And when you kind of feel that, no, like this is, the paper feels right, this feels right that's when you make the decision that you're going to auction it. And I think that's go down to anything like you're looking at art, like they do a rigorous pro project, they like looking into it and like it would be be really good. They obviously you can see technology from universities just like to do with paintings, like they are looking behind, they can they can see a lot more if it's real or not. I think that they will come with all these new kind of invention that's happening within the industry. Like we were talking about Macallan, like there, you can't reseal a Macallan, like mm. the cork splits now when you open it and that is to stop for you to be able to reseal it. The plastic breaks. So it doesn't look as flush anymore. Oh my gosh. Which is one of the inventions that are kind of coming in. And it's really good to kind of see that the industry is taking this as well. Like mm. they're taking it because it's, it's about protecting themselves as much as protecting us as an auction house is also protecting them for future down the line. Um, and there was a lot of times, because obviously when it comes down to any auction is that they had been big, um, like the agent stuff wanted to fill up their archives and do special tastings. They would, they would go to an auction house to buy 
to then replenish their own stock so they can do a really high-end old and rare tasting because if we're looking back we say 20 years ago a lot of them would just sell off all the stock and then you realize oh what happened with my archive um, <laughs> also, I don't think it was even as forward thinking as that it was a well why would we hang on to stuff we don't need it like it takes up space True. it occupies a yeah. room I have got a question for you mm-hmm. can you think of off the top of your head what's the best worst fake you've seen oh uh, <laughs> I want to see if yours is the same as mine uh, I think it was the Auburn yeah I was going to say okay yeah we got in an Auburn in a white bot- uh, wine bottle <laughs> so th- for those of you at home who have Google at your fingers, uh, I can't remember what year, but as part of the Diageo special releases, there was an Oban 32-year-old, and it's got a grey label uh, and a little neck tag, and we had some come in. So, obviously, while we're talking about fakers being very intelligent and very, you know, forward-thinking and good at making things look like other stuff, uh, these guys had bottled, I don't know what the liquid was, but it was in wine bottles with open labels attached to it. And we were like, oh, if you're going to come at us with fakes, at least put the effort in, right? Because Oban's quite a... Oban is quite a... Um, Distinctive bottle. Yeah, like it's not a... It's not a, yeah. an industry tall round. Uh, it's, you know, if you're going to fake it, it's quite difficult to get a matching fake bottle. So I wonder at what point the thought was like, ah, it's close enough, no one will... No one will know Wow. We, we did get in the... <laughs> wow. It was an Egyptian Chivas Regal, which I haven't spelled the name correctly. It was yeah, like Chivas... Good. Yeah. Chivas Rich or something, they called it. Yeah, like, they had just copied everything and you just saw the Badly. label, everything. Oh, yeah, it was, uh, it was really bad. But, yeah, so you've seen a couple of those <laughs> where you kind of have a giggle for yourself and you're going, No. <laughs> Yeah, there's also been bottles that we have suspected were fake and we've taken them back to the source, uh, the producers, and they've been like, no, that's 100% legit. That batch, we just put the labels on upside down. Mm. I was going to, so I was going to bring this up. There was a, there was a bottle of Glenmorangie, like a distillery only bottling, Sauterne cask, 16 year old or 15 year old, that I think I got through the auction you were at, uh, Jess. In, in your previous life and I received it and the the capsule was was really loose you could just twist it all along and it just it looked as if someone may have taken the capsule off refilled the liquid and and so I reached out to you said no 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 we we double checked we actually reached out to Glenn Morangie and at that time their capsule crimper that that fixes it wasn't working and so they were just using their hand yeah. To get it as tight as possible. And unfortunately, that's from a very specific era when the bottles are very uh, sought after and now quite pricey. It's from a time when uh, Glenmorangie and Ardbeg first merged. So a lot of the Ardbeg, Lord of the Mm. Isles bottlings, the early Ardbeg bottles, and a whole stack of stuff from Glenmorangie at the time, the capsule machine either didn't work or they were using the same machine for both bottle shapes and it didn't fit either particularly well. So that's why... A lot of those early ad bags, we used to call them like spinny caps. You could, yeah. so if they, if they were if yeah. they were super yeah. loose, we would reject them, and we would have to explain to sellers that we're not necessarily questioning the authenticity. But if this goes to, uh, you know, pizza capital of the universe, Connecticut, then I don't want to have to deal with an angry person on the other end of the phone who's like, I think this is refilled and faked, and the cost of bringing it back in. Yeah, and I think like that's probably the most rejection you have. It's actually like 
something that's that loose that it could be open and you say I'm very sorry but mm. this is an open bottle mm. I don't doubt you as a person but this is probably exactly what you're saying it is but we can't take it because literally I can go I can get sure. into it I can open it I can pour it out and then put it back as it is and I think that's one of those that yeah, yeah <laughs> a bit fun yeah, whether whether the bottle's fake now, it could be faked at a future that, that date too. if that, that person decides yeah. to sell it on. It's, yeah. it's really difficult because you're trying to fill, you're trying to build a good relationship on both sides. Whilst obviously an auction house's job is to make money, you are also trying to fit this happy medium where the buyers feel like they're getting a bargain, but the sellers feel like they're getting top dollar for their bottles, and kind of keeping everybody happy. It's it's a really uh, intricate little dance to do and something like that with the really super spinny caps but you're really the middleman to make both feel comfortable yeah, like exactly that is it. that is really what you're there for yeah. because we have all sat with our friend down at a table we have all had a whiskey and be like can i buy that off you and they say that's going to be 500 pounds but in your head you're like no that's 150 pounds then the haggling starting and then it becomes quite sour um like that is why you have an auction house to just cut all of that out so you both can enjoy each other's company are you relaying a personal story is that where we're not talking to each other currently yeah yeah he's is. just telling everybody how he lost all of his friends yeah. <laughs> um, but, but it's it's because the expectation from a buyer and the expectation from a seller is very different yeah of course. on a daily basis a seller yeah. for me that will come that had never used auction before they'll go online and they'll see the bottle is worth a thousand pounds They'll see it, it's an old and rare section on a retailer, and they're thinking, wow, I'm sitting on a thousand pounds. And when they call you, they tell you about this bottle, and you have, need to give them the bad news of saying, it's one third of the price. Because they need to make their margins. They need to, they can sit for three years on their shelf, they don't need to sell it. But in an auction, you're selling it here yeah. and now, on these 10 days, this yeah. is up. And I think that's it's about yeah. managing those expectations. And it's something that's not talked about. It's a real skill to be able to, like, talk to people and get them to understand, like, the real value of your product from an auction perspective. If you have a friend that will buy it for £1,000, then you have a good friend that wants to buy it for £1,000. But, like, today it's so easy to Google. You go in and you can see what is the price, what is an auction price. There's so much history of what the bottles is worth. And, like, even with people yeah. within... Like when you talk to whiskey, do you think, wow, you you have an amazing collection, you've built this, you obviously purchased it. They might have never used an auction and when they want to get rid of some of their collection, we come back to that's a thousand pounds and you're going, No, it's not. It's a three hundred fifty pound bottle. Yeah. That, and that's really hard. They're definitely the hardest conversations to have with people. Uh because obviously, you know, when you come into an auction to sell, everybody's quite excited about the prospect and you know, also, relatively frequently, there's a slightly sad story attached to it. Like, you know, we didn't just deal with people who had bought the bottle yesterday and were bringing it in. There are people who are dealing with, you know, like collections from relatives and like sensitive, emotional, real human stuff attached to it. And if they've done a quick Google and they've decided the mm. four bottles they're bringing in are going to, you know, pay for a funeral and it turns out you're really only looking at a couple of hundred quid, that's really difficult to try and talk someone down in a pleasant yeah, sure. way that's not 
going to have them running out of the office screaming, but also, you know, so that they realistically then don't think, well, I'll go talk to someone else and they have to have the same conversation again. It's really difficult. And I had to do it quite a few mm-hmm. times and that's yeah. hard. You already mentioned Bell's decanters were an absolute prime for that. They were sold to people as this. They're going to be a pension, put it away for the grandkids. You can send them to uni on it and they're not there. <laughs> Slightly strange looking uh, decanters with very basic Bell's liquid in it. And most auction houses won't accept them because they tend to be quite fragile and leak, which also is a problem of its own. But it's just not, people are not willing to heavily invest in it unless it's like they're really into one of the characters or the people that's on the decanter itself. The liquid inside mm. is, you know not particularly collectible i think we would but then we have had what was always quite nice as well like we spoke to a person that came in and they're like my son is going to university i need to raise this amount of money and you would go in and you would curate what will make that value to minimize the sale because for him they only want to sell it to up to that point because that was the money they need to go to university so like it's really good that you can go and help people as well. Uh, we're not there to give financial advice or anything like that, but we can say currently we think uh, like we have seen a trend in this particular distillery or this is, we, we, we know our buyers are looking particularly for these kind of bottles. And it was, it was quite nice to see that sure. because you don't want to thin anyone out of their whole collections when they don't need to. Like you're there to build a long-term relation with them and if they only need to get rid of, we say, 10 bottles rather than 150 bottles, they might be really happy with that. And I think mm-hmm. that's a big... Things that people are missing out with it as well. Like, you're there to help this the seller as much as possible as the same as with the buyers because you also want to make your auction look interesting. So you have that kind of two things in your head when you go in and talk to someone. And it's... It's also, there could be someone has passed away, as we talked mm. about. Like, it's not always a nice conversation to have. Um, we had someone to turn up with a bottle of Johnny Walker, with, which was the, the kind of love of their life. Uh, there was a parent that passed away. Yeah, it was her dad's Johnny Walker blue label, and it was the thing that when... And I'm sure it still happens now. When people came around to the house, he took it out of the cupboard, and it was like his pride and joy. And she... Uh, we really did talk to her quite a long time. We explained that this bottle was not going to, although it was her dad's pride and joy, was not going to do the mega money. And it was then, you know, well, perhaps it was better. She took the bottle home and had it as like a, you know, a, a memory to him in the house. But it did go for auction and mm. she was okay with it. She's the lady that also was like, oh, I've got this carrier bag of other whiskey. And we were like, okay, good. Let's change the subject slightly. Let's get these other bottles out. See what else we're working here. You mean these crap whiskeys? Well, crossing your fingers that it wasn't like a bag of Chivas Regal from the 70s or something. But uh, And what she brought out was all the first editions of Brora. She had like 12 of them. And we were like, oh, so these are worth like a lot of money. And... um, She was like, oh, I've been pouring them down the sink. I gave one to the decorator. One of them's gone to the church. Oh. Genuinely, one of them's gone to the church. Fate. And oh, we were like, so God. what church was that? We'll just, we'll buy all the raffle tickets. <laughs> um, and she, wow. she couldn't, couldn't get her head around this. She's like, but my dad was never bothered about these. These lived in the loft. These were just like a secondary thought. It was the blue label that was in the living room, in a cabinet, on display, uh, wow. was for everybody to see. Wow. She, she really could not get her head around it at all. And she wanted to buy a bench. A memorial for her dad 
in the local park with a plaque yeah. on it. And we were like, you can have like 10 benches. Like you can have a whole row of benches if that's what you want. And she really, when she rang up to ask how the bottles had done, the only thing she wanted to know about was that blue label. She didn't give a monkey about these brewers that the rest of us were like, oh my God, look at these. Ah. I think, I think as well though, like when it comes down to that story, like you as an auctioneer, you really try to them to keep that possession because a lot of people do regret it. So they like, at this time we didn't manage to do it. Uh, but a lot of times, because it was like, I just don't want to be reminded. A lot of times when they're on the edge, it's quite nice to say, just you keep that. If you want to come back, we're still open. Come back yeah. in a year's time if you feel you want to get rid of it. But keep it for mm-hmm. now. And that, that's quite a nice little th- thought, especially when they think the pride and joy is actually not what's going to make them money. Like when they bring out these fantastic brewers and Portellans. <laughs> Honestly, it was one of those like, what, this is it? She's, she was like, oh, oh, you mean like I should have kept the other ones that I was just throwing down the drain? Like, oh. Yeah, yeah, that was... So, I mean, I that was that was kind of, like, halfway through. That wasn't even the early days of me being at the auctions. Like, So I, I think it's funny, like, it's very easy, especially when you're on Facebook, seeing all these, you know, people sharing stories about the flippers and all that kind of stuff. It's very easy to forget. There is mm. still... The vast majority of it is attached to humans who are just trying to make their way in some small way. Maybe they're trading out whiskeys, maybe they're... We've, I know people who have used it to fund weddings, to buy cars, to send kids to university, to go and see relatives that they haven't seen in decades on the other side of the world. You know, like I've got tons of really nice little, really human stories that in my mind, when I'm also like you guys getting annoyed about the flippers, I think about the people who were coming in and trying to do some good people who... Uh, when there'd been natural disasters in various places around the world, felt so moved that they auctioned off huge swathes of their collections to send as humanitarian relief. Like, normal, everyday people who just wanted to contribute in some way they could, and so that whiskey allowed them to do something good. Now, whether or not the whiskey that was sold then meant it went and sat in somebody's collection, maybe it was passed through auction houses, another few set of hands, or maybe it accidentally ended up in a tasting with some people in Glasgow who drank it and talked nice stories in the Bon Accord on a Monday night. You know, that's it would be cool to kind of track where whiskey ends up. I, I think that would be fun. But I I think, you know, there's there's good happening. And I have to, in the in the dark moments of thinking about the whiskey industry, I have to hang on to the fact that the four of us, but especially you and I, Chris, have been offered the opportunity to try some incredible whiskies that there's literally no other way we would have had. Yeah, and I think we it's one of those things that we talked a lot about because of the tastings we're doing, but also the people we're meeting. I'm very happy that someone bought this bottle, it sat in their cupboard for 50 years for someone else to enjoy. Like, yeah, they maybe will make someone happy. We know collectors that just collect whiskey. They just love whiskey. They don't drink whiskey. They just love the story, the yeah. history, yeah. all of it. But it gives them what a painting will do. But they're not into paintings. Like, we have met people yeah. that yeah. we have talked to and they bought a case of, we'll say, a Art Beg, Lord of Dials. And they've gone through and they've sold one of them. They paid for the rest of them. And they basically say, the, the rest of the five we are drinking, come over here and you're going to try it if you haven't tried it yet. You yeah. know, all of that yeah. gives us opportunity uh, and as we are meeting up with each other, we also have whiskies that we each other haven't tried. And it's the same mentality, I think. It's, it's about sharing and giving. And 
it's like everything. It's two two percent this bad, but that's gonna color your whole insight of the industry, which is mm. very wrong. Like the industry is very generous, and I think whiskey people are very generous. I I haven't met any other people that's so generous with as just said time, their liquid as the whiskey industry has been. I'm open to bribery, though. I mean, if somebody works in a different industry and wants to give me a selection of vintage Ashton Martins or I'm willing to access, <laughs> access to some vintage watches or a really big selection of, I don't know, chocolate. Like, I mean, come at me, Jess at singlecastnation.com. You can get hold of me there. I'm also, also into Lego, by the way. Oh, like, vintage like Lego. Lego. I feel like we should also say this podcast is not sponsored by Big Whiskey because we've just got a bit kind of <laughs> doe-eyed about it, which will incense people massively. Gonna... People are tuning in. They're so ready. They're like on the edge of their seats for us to be like, and another thing about flippers. And so far, we've not no. done that. Sorry, guys. We're just teasing you. So you've you've set me up perfectly because you did such an incredible job turning Joshua's hot potato into a touchy feely warm moment a delicious uh, with people cheese. supporting benches for their dads. I, I I would be remiss if I didn't lob my own hot potato at you. Please do. That I, I'm asking because I I want to hear your on the wax response to this. And then, then we can start tasting some whiskey together. Um, so, there are rumblings that auction houses have ruined whiskey. We have seen Diageo annual pricing go north. We have seen an inability to get certain bottles at retail because they all get bought up and put on auctions. I'm guessing you don't think auctions have ruined whiskey, but what do you say to those who who lob that hot potato at you? Okay, so I think we're gonna need to take a step back again <laughs> because I'm, I like taking a step back and I never see you the would bigger. Come into this as some sort of like neutral Swede. I was really expecting you to come in all guns blazing. Uh, no, but I think like ask whiskey and another thing. and another thing, yeah. <laughs> Uh, let me do the 10 uh, things I'm going to talk about. What a definitive lift. Yeah, Josh exactly. was really into them. I think when it comes down to it, it's kind of... the Whiskies be pushed to make more sales every year. Is it the auction that have changed that? Or is it the big business that have changed that? They're opening up new markets. They're bringing out new releases. They're telling you you need to get this new release. Mm. Going back 10 years, the releases per year per distillery were maybe four or five. Now you're looking mm-hmm. at 10. They're mm-hmm. all single malt. They're all single casks. They're driving that themselves. They will be looking what auctions mm-hmm. and what they can achieve in auctions. And of course, the auction will be some reflection to that. But ref- that will only give you a certain time spot and a certain date when you sell a product so if someone is selling a bottle that should cost a hundred pounds and it sells in auction for a thousand pounds it's two guys that are willing to buy for a thousand pounds you're right and that's where it comes from yeah, and yeah, that is yeah. literally going down to the private client that they already deals with and if you're not good enough to be on the private client you don't get the bottle then you need to start forking out more money so i think it's actually driven by them it's not driven by auction it's driven by retailers Let's see what they can make. Like, I think it's very unfair to blame it all on auctions. I think everyone is the 
if we want to call it the problem, is everyone is the problem, really. It's the guy that's willing to spend a thousand pounds. We're looking, we're asking also distillers to bring out mm. something special so you can show that and say, look at me, I managed to get this, but you didn't. So I think it's a very, it's a very, we can talk about an hour probably just about that and what each of the compartments within in the whiskey industry is driving this pricing. It's also, we didn't lay down enough stock. We also talk about mm. stock being mm. very rare. Is it very rare? That's a big question coming back at you guys. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's outrageous because famously at Single Cast Nation, we don't like to keep our listeners or uh, fans happy. We refuse to sell it. So it's all very rare. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think that that is kind of... We're about to do a special release of 70,000 bottles. Very limited. All at 85 years <laughs> old. Very special. Yeah, but that, that's also... All at 85 years That's old. also something I think is very funny. But what is a rim- limited release? Is it a single cask or is it 22,000 bottles, 100,000 bottles? They right. they obviously yeah. know their market and they do huge market research. They're big money behind it. And I don't think it's just us driving it. I think old bottles, yes, the prices has been driven by collectors. But also, we all talk about the Black Bull more. If you have tried it, you need to try it. Yeah. And if you are yeah. willing to spend 500 pounds, you're 30 people, you're putting that together... You can buy that bottle. Why are you, you selling Black Bomo for five hundred pounds? No, per person. Yeah. Everyone contributes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've got five hundred pounds right here. Give me I was like, I let me just get my pounds. Uh, <laughs> now, <laughs> I, I think you are right uh, for all of my facetiousness. I think it's not as cut and clear as the idea of did auction houses ruin everything. Auction houses are really only responding to the demand. I think, as usual. We have ruined it for ourselves. That's why we can't have nice things, is everybody got too giddy and started putting 10-year-old Springbank into auction uh, because they thought they could make an extra buck. And it turns out they can. So that's upsetting if you're a Springbank fan. I think the uh, throwaway to that should be stop being hung up on Springbank 10-year-old. Come back to it when it's not the thing everyone's looking for. When everyone's zigging, do a zag. Make Fetakern 12 your new thing. Actually, I said that. That's mean. The new Fetkern, very good. Fetkern sixteen. Made that your new thing. Been the Springbank for a while. Go and try something else. That's hey. why single casks are great because <laughs> you can't get attached to them because once you've had it, done. See, th- this is the thing though. You guys are so obsessed with this kind of Scotch thing. I'm just saying Westland, you know. Hoo hoo. No, I'm joking. <laughs> World whiskies for me. <laughs> You know, uh, West uh, I think World Whiskies, I think it's, it's a really cool thing. And I think that, like, as we're talking about, like, these certain brands get very popular. There are other whiskies out there that you can go and find as well. And uh, you can be very excited about and, like, seeing what's... But you're talking about it from a drinker's yeah. perspective, which is, in my opinion, the right perspective, right? It, it's so many of these bottles are have reached the point of unobtainium. And meanwhile, what have you been doing for the past X number of years? You've been following flavor. And what, like, the world whiskey has totally opened that up, and they're still accessible from a pricing standpoint, whether it's on auction or elsewhere. But or I, can't, I can't remember, but someone was saying maybe the whiskey of the old days were so underpriced of what actually they should have cost. Maybe today we have reached what whiskey should cost. That's also a question that can yeah. be brought out there. Mm. Was it too cheap? Yeah. Mm. That's an unpopular yeah. question. 
is yeah. a very unpopular question. And I'm glad that you don't have to regularly face people by saying, look, previously, all far too cheap. Because let me tell you, if I go into retailers saying, look, look, these prices are the price. Everything else previously, far too cheap. They're going to say, there was the door. Please shut it when you're on the other side. It's a good argument. Well worth making. question for you but it's really sort of a closing question and I thought it might be good for us to use this time unless you disagree for us to use this time to taste through these four final Macbeth whiskeys and we can maybe have some liquid courage to potentially answer this this final hot potato that I throw in your lap but I also realize you know I, I'm, I'm one of two hosts so Jason I didn't want to cut you off if there's something you wanted to get to before we taste oh, these. I was, I was the same as you. I was asking myself, do I want to ask a follow-up about Brexit or do I want to taste these Macallan whiskies with friends? And I decided I wanted to taste these Macallan, uh, these uh, uh, Macallan, uh, these Macallan. <laughs> I know today's podcast is being brought to you by Macallan. That was a um, trick question because I, I think none of them are Macallan. So ignore no, that. Don't let me persuade you otherwise. <laughs> Yeah, I I decided I wanted to taste these Macbeth whiskies with friends. So, so to, so, to so Jason, yeah. I you, yeah you you've you've got all the the paperwork and all of the rules. So why don't why don't you take us and our listeners through this yeah. because you're much smarter at this stuff. Yeah, than Jason, you're the one that's done all the preparation. Why don't you introduce our listeners to this? So why we've not, tasted. Right? Um, well, let's let's start at the beginning. <sighs> Elixir, along with uh, a marketing agency and Sir Quentin Blake, put out nine Macbeth-themed whiskies. Mm-hmm. And uh, our good friend Oliver Chilton and team sent us eight of the nine samples. We did not get the King Duncan 10,000-pound, 55-year-old... Glen Grant, which is, is fine. We're still friends with Ollie. It's okay. We've still pressed ahead and done the tastings. So we tasted samples one and two a couple of episodes ago, or a few episodes ago now, and we found out that one was Satan, S-E-Y-T-O-N, and one was the first witch. And uh, and the first witch has, has been an absolute favourite of mine. In our last episode, we tasted samples three and four, and we we found out they are Lady Macduff and Angus. And we guessed the first three correct, we got Angus wrong. We thought Angus was Menteith, and, uh, and that left mm. us hanging a little bit. We made a decision that to wrap up the four whiskies, the four samples together made more sense than sampling another two and then only leaving ourselves two characters for the final two samples. That that didn't seem like it was going to be much fun. So we are going through, there are four of us, there are four samples, and there are four characters to pair with these samples. So... I will give you the characters and you can begin to think as you're nosing through samples five, six, seven, and eight. We are looking five, for six, seven, eight. 
Scooting, baby. We're looking for Menteith still. We're looking for first ghost. We're looking for first murderer. And we're looking for the bloody sergeant. And I have four descriptors that I will read in due course. But the way we've been doing this is sticking our nose in. Sometimes, Jess, dedicated to you, we will have a little chat about colour. Thanks, but guys. we also have been sticking our nose in and just having a wee chat about what we're getting. So, so when you, Jess and Chris, when you stick your nose in, what do you get on sample number five? I'll let you start. Chris is anxious because I've asked how often, as I assume he has done regularly, has he read Macbeth? Yeah. Yeah. Did you read that in high school in Sweden? So I haven't read any of his stuff. So. All right. He's overrated. Don't worry about it. He's also very dead. He doesn't know that you said that. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do it in, in time when I'm sitting with a whiskey and 65 years old and retired and... It's really embarrassing that these two have only got one to eight samples and we've got one to nine, so... I know. Whoa! Whoa, the truth shall set you free, Jess! Whoa! Uh, That's a joke, Ollie, but if you want to send me the ninth one, I'm okay with (laughs) it. Team Yorkshire. You're happy to keep it under your hat. Team Yorkshire. Uh, All right. Is there a difference between Macbeth and in in the big Macbeth? Is that two all beef patties? Special sauce? I thought you were going for the big... Macbethsky. <laughs> How do you feel about number five? So number five, I think it's uh, one of these kind of nice people pleaser. It's like quite light and um, like oh, really? kind of summary. on the nose? Oh, don't be careful. Careful with your nose texture words, guys. I'm still not fully subscribed to this. Remember that oh, this is my second language. Like- so don't use big words. Use simple words. I do do struggle following one nation on the whiskey when all the big words is thrown around. You were the one who brought up accessibility. You can describe this in Swedish to our Swedish listeners. Yeah, yeah. We do have to drink when someone says accessible. That's a rule implemented by Jess. That's from my so, old wine days. So you you'd mentioned that there's sort of a, a lightness in character and accessibility to this and, and I got I got inviting and I got fruity but but it had a bit of heft in the background to it and it almost like a, like a burnt granola kind of note going on in the background too so it so it's fruity but for me on the nose I am um, I'm gonna give you heft. an obscure nosing note or oh, Chris drinks that uh, i think it smells like the uh when i was a child we used to get uh sherbet fountains and they used to come wrapped it was like a cardboard tube with like a paper wrap around the outside and it had fizzy sherbet and it had a licorice straw in the middle of it and the theory Indeed. was you were supposed to be able yep. to like use the licorice i think either to like soak up the sherbet or as a dip I hate licorice so i immediately used to palm that off to my mother but i think it smells mm. like the wrapping paper for it that was where hmm. my brain went today. Oh, wow. I like it. So when wrapping paper, do you, are you, are you talking? So sometimes we'll talk about whiskeys that have this cardboardy note, which you'd say is kind of fainty. And there's some distilleries that are kind of famous for having a bit of a faintiness. Are you going there? And by fainty for our listeners, like the tails, right? Heads, hearts, tails. The Scots call it the faint. So 
Are you going there with with that sort of like packaging note? A little bit, but paper wrapper note. A little bit, but it's still got that kind of. You can still kind of smell. There's like a savory, licorice-y bit to it. It's really making my mouth water. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, not not that I've been nosing through Jesus. all of them, but I know exactly which character number seven is. That's cheating. Oh, you're doing the thing where you're okay. not like. It was always well, me at school. One person who reads ahead while the class is reading out one line at a time. I will probably be behind them when it but, came to the reading. Ooh. Oh, well, if you get, if is, you get number we were, seven wrong, we're yeah. going to be very disappointed in you. That's what happens. Right, right. When we, were, when we were doing the last couple of tastings of these and we kept reading one character who had some distinct notes that wasn't showing up in any of the samples so far, as soon as I got to sample seven, I was like... That's the character we have not found a home for. I know exactly <laughs> who that is. So that's so, good. Okay, so so I'd been nosing sample number five this yes. whole time. Sample yes, number yes. six, going through my cursory first sniff. Yes, yes. Sample number six was by far the biggest, fruitiest, slash older, oldest smelling liquid. Right back to, I don't know if it was the last taste. Yeah, I think it was the last tasting where I said... This one has that note of some of the 1950s, foie, 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 1950s Glen Farkless we've had, where it's just like, it's a note that can only be described as an extended period of time in cask, right? Okay. And, okay. I, and I'm getting that in six. And then in mm-hmm. seven, like that, that is off the bat, that is f- funk. Like, but a bready kind of funk going on, much lighter in color, and then, and then eight. It's almost as if, if you took nori, like seaweed, nori seawood, and sort of like dipped it into soy sauce. It kind of has this sort of umami kind of thing going on in the nose. Mm. And so th- those were the four things that I got, and and to my mind, I don't remember. The description of the characters, but I'm curious as to know why you think Jason Seven has to be. Well, let me <laughs> let me person. use this time while well, while well, Jason and Chris are nosing all all four samples here. Let me remind you and the listeners what we're looking for here. So so Menteith is still up for grabs. The description, mm-hmm. maturity brings forth a relaxed air. This is now a life of ermine, the satisfaction of sweet meats and spices, fruits and flowers. Yet for all the damask rose and sandalwood, at the core lurks a hint of smoke. Comfort pushed aside and darkness embraced. The muscles flex anew, power grows, it will act. So that's Menteith. Uh, first ghost is a, is a bit poetic here. Dismissed too easily, the eyes move away, daring to doubt the spirit. Gold glitters on the helm, the voice soft but persistent, the execution firm. Resist disbelief for sweet reward or regret will haunt you. Uh, we also had mentioned in, in prior episodes that the first ghost, the ghost series, comes from closed distilleries. So you can keep that in mind as we go. First murderer, pallid, 
with a reek of wood smoke and tallow candles, salt sweat on the brow, lean shanked yet muscular, downtrodden, dismissed and angry, a, a denizen of the darkest taverns. For a few coins as night falls, a throat will feel its bite, a child will die. Money runs thicker than blood. And before I read The Bloody Sergeant, a reminder that these tasting notes come from Dave Broom, supplied to this project. And so finally, The Bloody Sergeant, the rough hemp of the tunic stiffened with clotted blood, the wearied walk through the thickened glower of autumn woods, surviving on a diet of acorns and stewed tea, a solid and trustworthy messenger, a worker, a warrior, not for him the comfort of the palace, his is a life willingly given to service. Ooh. And I cannot help but think number seven is the bloody sergeant. Yes. Interesting. So as you were reading the first murderer, that's I was I I was thinking number seven for okay. first murderer. Okay. I just think that hemp hemp is a note that yeah. I can't help but get I'm in this whiskey. Get... Okay. Well let me let me taste that one. Oh gosh. So I, I haven't tasted. I've only I've only have uh, Jess and Sweetscott have, have the both of you tasted we have, these whiskeys? And yet? because neither of us are competitive in the slightest. <laughs> Please, dear listener, take that with a gigantic eye wink. Please continue, Jess. Uh, so I'm pretty confident I know what number eight is. Ooh. And I also would have Ooh. said number seven. It's five and six. Ooh. I'm swithering about. Now I've listened to those descriptors. Right. I feel like I'm dithering. But I'm also worried that this okay. is going to be an exact repeat of the London Whiskey Show where we had to blind test as mm. part of the Taste of Westland and I was famously misquoted and I'm still upset about it. And I was right. So I feel like I've got a streak that I have to maintain. I, w I will go on record to say that Jess did get four out of four. I will go on record <laughs> this time only. Listeners, uh, I can't tell you. I didn't pay him to say that and there isn't enough money in my bank to make him admit out loud that I was right if he didn't want to. I Didn't feel like cover this in the mailbag episode this happen. year as well. Like, doesn't this come feel, up every yeah. time you like two are together? Over this. Oh man! Not that I famously You're rehashing the mailbox. Yeah. Famously hold a grudge. All right, so, so I feel like number, just, number yes, number eight is you think? I think uh, number eight is our um, first ghost severed head. Oh, so do I. I oh. I, I feel that, and I feel number five is men teeth. Yes. Okay, I, so let's pause, pause for a second. With pause. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Pause uh -huh. for a second. Mm. So mm. we're hearing seven bloody sergeant, rough hemp of the tunic, stiffened with clotted blood. Number eight. Now, we haven't actually heard any nosing or, or tasting notes for number eight yet. So uh, when we read the ghost, did you say ghost or, or murderer for number eight? Ghost. Because I think it's ghost. a clever okay. reference. Ghost. I think it's a clever reference because as we've discussed and you have discussed in previous times, the ghost is a closed distillery, which is canvas. Yeah. So that would be where ah. my uh, money would go so with that. I was going to say, easily. this has a grain, 
The eyes move like away, to it. daring to doubt yeah. the spirit. Gold glitters on the helm, the voice soft but persistent, the execution firm. Resist disbelief for sweet reward or regret will haunt you. And then it's got some of that grain brightness to it. It's got a gorgeous, a grainy, gluey note to it, which is... citrus. It's another one of these, you know, when you pour people You've grain re- whiskeys and they're like, no way, that's a grain. Like, yes. I feel like it's a very velvety... It reminds me of our mm, good texture. texture. Yes. Which is, I think... It reminds me of the... Uh, it, it comes down yeah. with canvas. I think it's as a grain distillery. That was one that was very velvety, very, like, a mouth-coating. Like, kind of going down that kind of wheat... Uh, end of mm. stuff like it just coats your mouth I'm really really rem- pleased that we're doing these four like this because if we had done six and seven alone I think seven and eight would have been really easy and an absolute <laughs> slam dunks so having the four of them we've already identified seven and eight even in the four hopefully we're right Joshua you've been waiting to to make comment yeah, just just that number eight uh, reminds me quite a lot of our of our own twenty eight year old canvas that we did six months in in Muscatel. It has that that creamy kind of velvety quality to it. Um, so it, it seems we're all four of us in a in a consensus there with first ghost for number eight. Yep. Um, we haven't, and and I suggested number five was men teeth. Men we haven't teeth. talked about number six. What do you guys think about men teeth? Men teeth has given us such problems. I feel burned from our last episode. Mm-hmm. And, and the quote from Shakespeare under men teeth is, revenge is burning them for their dear causes wood to the bleeding and the grim alarm. Excite the mortified man. That's exactly how I feel internally, trying to correctly identify men teeth. But, but it talks about there being... Uh, a delicate hint of smoke going on in Menteith somewhere, and um, and that has a very delicate hint of smoke, doesn't it? Yes, yes. For all the damask rose and sandalwood, at the core lurks a hint of smoke. Comfort pushed aside yeah. and darkness embraced. And there's sandalwood on the nose. It, it's got that almost you know, Buddhist temple kind Which of smell Which then means, do we then think, Jess and Chris, do we? Do you agree? Do you think Menteith is in the lead at number five? Do you have a, a conviction about number six? Uh, I think, I think you and I are in agreement. I think we think five is the bloody sergeant, six is Menteith, seven is the first murderer, and eight is the first ghost. Oh, oh. Whoa, whoa, I thought we agreed. Oh my gosh, I thought you were in agreement with me, Jess, that seven was for Sergeant. mm, I'm still swithering about the Sergeant and Menteith. Bloody Sergeant. The the bloody Sergeant, as opposed to a bloody Mary. Uh, I think (laughs) there's a kind of, it's the the mention of the smoke that's kind of throwing me out a little bit. It's the fact that five is so, it's got fruitiness to it. And strawberries and straw, which I associate much more with Blair Rattle. I also don't think I remember Menteith as a character. It's a long time since I read Macbeth. So that's the problem. The first one that you guys have done, you had like 
quite distinguishable characters. Yeah. Yeah, getting tripped up between Menteith and Angus as as characters, hmm. I feel like they take up about the same amount of the play. So he, here's the thing, though. Menteith says that there's a bit of smoke going on in there. I'm not finding a hint of smoke anywhere on sample number six. It's very loud and proud in sample number seven. Yeah. It's, you can't find it in, in sample number eight. We, we, you know, we all agree that that's a yeah. grain and yeah. likely canvas. Yeah. Um, where sample five is the only one that has that hint of smoke. Yeah. At least for me. Yeah, it's like a kind of wisp of, you know, when you start a fire and you're just on the kind of first bit of the kindlings, it's a little... Whereas, yeah, seven <clears> is definitely <throat> unmistakable, in-your-face, punchy. So does that change your mind? Does, does, does that have you switching Menteith to, to number five? Nah, and I'm staying with Menteith first is six. murderer to number six? No, Menteith is six for me. Are you going to change your mind, Chris? I, I think I need to go with my birthday buddy. Like maybe I need to to change the camp. Like we're born on the same day, you know. Hey, like yeah. Sagittarius. <laughs> yeah, I th I think I need to do it. He he did such a good like con like converting me over to it. So such I'll a go. People pleaser. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> I'm famous for it. I also think it's because the number six is a bit richer and a bit more full-bodied and to me that makes me think it's an older whiskey somewhat uh whereas the yeah. mm -hmm. the one that is the bloody sergeant is younger tasting to my so that's why i made it five i'm also doing pointing yeah, I... which the listeners are going to be really enjoying because they can't see any of it um, so wait, wait a second. We we've we believe Bloody Sergeant was sample number seven, correct? No, I think it is number. So we we did. Five. I have changed my mind. I I keep rereading First Murderer, and First Murderer says pallid, which means pale, with a reek yep. of wood smoke and tallow candles. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to say I'm getting more reek of wood smoke than I am hemp. So yeah. I I feel like first murderer makes much more sense as number seven. Definitely the, the pallid I, thing I'm does cool it for it. Yeah. That was my initial guess. The pallid does it for me. Tallow candles is yeah. such a weird and specific note. I I know what a tallow yeah. candle is, but I've never had one in my house. I don't know if I'd know what the smell okay. was, but I get the kind of gist of it. Do you know what a tallow candle is? No, uh, like what I'm thinking about is like a sauna in number seven, you know, like just yeah, that kind of wood smoke. wood smoke and like right. if you actually have yeah, a wood, sure. wood yeah. proper wood fired sauna, yeah. that, that's kind of more. And I know that's your reference down to Lafroig, but so our, that has... Our international listeners may not know what a tallow candle is. It's a candle that's made from animal fat. Mm. Yeah, I just remember... Um, tallow being used to cook chips in uh, in chippies when I was growing up, and I may have told Steve Hawley how much I enjoyed the chips the, the last time I was in the whiskey bar on Second Avenue in Seattle, and he said, "Yeah, mm. they'll be cooked in beef fat." I was like, "Don't just don't tell me that right now. <laughs> just don't tell me that. 
they were, and I said to him, they were like the chips of my youth. And uh, and all the chips of my youth were cooked in tallow. So there we go. That so was the, a fun the chip one for the vegetarians. That was here. the day I met you two as well. The chips opposite here are all cooked in beef fat. The chip shop yeah, opposite us still uses animal fat. That's why it smells there you so go. good. Those oh, chips were enough. excellent. If Can those you... are the chips you were eating when we met you, primo. They are. They were. Yep. Joshua. So I have I have my four guesses here. But I, I'm just, just to make sure that I'm correct, or I think I'm, so it's just as long as I feel comfortable, how's that? Could you just do one last time, read me the, yeah. the bloody sergeant? Yeah, so we're, we're pretty clear that eight is the ghost, and we think it's canvas. ghost, yep. Seven yep. is the first murderer, and we yep. have not identified a distillery mm-hmm. on that yet. Number, uh, so that's that's those two. Let me read you Menteith, and then I'll read you The Bloody Sergeant. Okay. okay. So, Menteith, maturity brings forth a relaxed air. This is now a life of ermine, the satisfaction of sweetmeats and spices, fruits and flowers. Yet for all the damask rose and sandalwood, at the core lurks a hint of smoke, comfort pushed aside and darkness embraced. The muscles flex anew, power grows, it will act. Um, and then, Bloody Sergeant. The rough hemp of the tunic stiffened with clotted blood, the wearied walk through the thickened glower of autumn woods, surviving on a diet of acorns and stewed tea, a solid and trustworthy messenger, a worker, a warrior, not for him the comfort of the palace. His is a life willingly given to service. Man, I tell you, I feel overly confident. I have the confidence of a middle-aged white man that Menteith is sample five, that first murderer is sample seven, that first ghost is sample eight. But the bloody sergeant doesn't seem to match sample six. Okay, okay. Let's leave that hanging for a second. Jess and Sweet Scott, once again, your your guess is in order. So Chris and I are now disagreeing because he's trying to buddy up with his birthday buddy. I am remaining (laughs) that sample five... Happy birthday. (laughs) I'm remaining that sample five is the bloody sergeant. Six is the mentee. Seven is the first murderer. Eight is the first ghost. Okay. Okay, so we've got a five and six swap. Mm-hmm. So so we haven't done this previously, um, although we, I do remember saying when we had our, our two samples last time, the four characters we were looking at were all 31-year-old single malts, were the four characters that we'd identified as being potentials with the two we were looking at. Um, I can tell you the four whiskies we have not yet revealed, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to attach these to sample numbers. I'm just going to tell you one of these four is a Benria 31-year-old. One, I don't know which one that is. One is a Blair Athol 10-year-old. One is a Cambus 31-year-old. And one is a Lechig 18-year-old. Now, we're pretty convinced eight is Canvas 31. Mm-hmm. 
we're pretty yes. convinced Seven is the first murderer. And I would think that has to be a Lechig 18-year-old. Lechig, yeah. yeah. Right? Which then leaves I... us samples five and six, <laughs> men teeth and bloody sergeant, choosing between Ben Riach, 31-year-old, and Blair Athol, 10-year-old. So, the, so there's no way, there's no way sample six is 10 years old. Right. It's got the reek of a much older whiskey and has the fruitiness that that you would you would get in older Ben Riacs. So it's got to be Blair Athol ten for five, Ben Riach thirty one for six, Lechig eighteen for seven, and Cambus thirty one for eight. So my yes. question, Joshua, is now that you've heard the distilleries, have you switched your character guesses? Yes, he has. No. Because you've now just come to Jesse's side and Jess was disagreeing with Sweet Scott and Sweet Scott was agreeing with you. I think I'm right. I still, I still feel that the description uh, that Dave Broom provided for Menteith uh-huh. matches that what we assume to be the 10-year-old Blair Athol too closely because there's no... I'm not getting any any smoke in in sample number six, and I was getting sandalwood and a slight floral character out of sample number five. And floral, uh, sandalwood, and a hint of smoke are all coming through on sample okay. five. Okay. Okay. So me. to be clear for our listeners, Joshua and Chris think five is menteeth. Jess thinks six is menteeth. Is that correct? Correct. All yes. right. Let's. I like that you've counted yourself the... out, birthday buddy. You're supposed to be on my side. Well, if we're birthday buddies, I'm going to go with Jess in a heartbeat. No doubt about it. Okay, good. Phew. That reassured me. Okay, now you can do birthday the buddies reveal. can do it. There we go. Yeah. December 6th can do it. June 27th and 29th can do it too. Yeah. Joshua's busy Googling something. <laughs> So before we get to the room, I'm going to show you, this also won't help the listeners at home. I've written it down, so I'm not changing my mind. Who said the bloody sergeant is number five? Me. Oh, birthday buddies. That is correct. Get it up here, six of December. Bloody sergeant is number five? Bloody sergeant is the, what is it, 10 year old Blair Athol sample number five? Which means Joshua Menteith has got you again. He got you in the last episode. He's got you in this episode. He has been sneaky to you. I didn't mean to to send you down the wrong path, birthday buddy. Uh-huh. I feel like I was I was on Jess's side first, and then you convinced me. I just felt like I can't go the other way. Like it was so convincing the way you did it. It was. White man in his 50s, confidence behind you. <laughs> He's not in his 50s yet. Still in my 40s. That's, that's the amazing thing. <laughs> I will. I will, the 50s, I will confirm for everybody that number eight is first ghost and number seven is first murderer. So. Okay. Do you know what that means? That once again, wow. it means I was right. You got four out of four, Jess. Let the record show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Sweet Scott and I messed up five and six. 
we got seven yeah. and eight. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I think you're right. Because so, seven and now, eight, if you'd done that on its own, would be very obvious and not much of a talking point. So my question to, to you all, and, and Jess, I'll start with you. Do you have a favorite amongst the four? When I was going through them, as we were just uh, picking them out, I was really enjoying the canvas, like, jumped out of me straight away. It was pretty obvious what it was, and it matched the description really well, and I was trying to think, in the style of Dave Broom, there was a bit of a cryptic nod to stuff, so that was my ghosts on a ghost. Um, but actually, coming back and retrying this, the guy who got you, the Menteith, the Benriac 31, is really something that is one hell of a dram That's, it's yeah. got so much in it yep. it's really funny listening to you describe why you thought that was the the other way around to me because all the tasting notes you were giving for it being a menteith which is actually the Blair Athol all those tasting notes are things I associate with the Blair Athol so it was kind of funny that we swapped them the other way around but yeah for me that that Ben Rare 31 year old is a really special treat and that's Really a very delicious yeah, dram. Yeah, really nice. Uh, I think yeah. my favourite label, though, is The Ghost. I really love Quentin Blake. He's been, obviously, because of Roald Dahl, a feature in my mm. whole childhood, so these would be really cool to have. So if you guys wanted to gift me the entire set, including the really expensive one, all four acts would be super fine a okay with me. I'll have them out for people to look at. <laughs> Loud and clear. Loud and clear. Um, uh, what about you, Chris? What, what what was your favorite amongst the four? I would probably go down the route of uh, Cambus. That for me, I really like Cambus. I think it's it's a shame we don't have Cambus anymore. Uh, I just really like that velvety palette that you get on, and mm -hmm. as you're kind of going back and forth, like even drinking the Lechig, it still stands up afterwards. It still says hello, I'm here, like. It does. Yeah. And I think that yeah. the the number six, the Benriach, is also gorgeous. The Blair Athol is both of them are, are really, really good. Um but just it's it's just I think maybe because it's summer, maybe it's like having the chance of drinking a canvas, I've just get vacation vibes almost, you know, like it's just it's just <laughs> really nice. It stays on it fights with all the, the single malts really well. Like, it doesn't want to be quiet. It's still there. It's, mm -hmm. But it sounds like it's really rough, but it's not. It's it's just... Should we use the S word? No. Okay, we don't use the <laughs> S smooth. Oh, soft, no. yeah, I agree. De definitely soft. Soft, definitely. yeah. Soft. yeah. Uh, Silky. Yeah, supple. Yeah. <laughs> For listeners, the supple. canvas yeah. is one of 650 bottles at 46.2% alcohol and is £299 a bottle. The the Benriach 31-year-old, like the other 31-year-old scotches that we tasted, is $750 a bottle, uh, coming in at 53.1% alcohol. The Lechig, change his screen here, the Lechig is... 50.5% alcohol, £225 a bottle, which for wow. an 18-year-old independently bottled Lechig is, is well within its money. Uh, it is mm -hmm. one of 2,100 bottles. Ah, okay. So, so of that. Pl plenty of that to go around. And then the Blair Athol at 51.8% alcohol 
is £95 a bottle. One of... 2,800 bottles. So I think like we discussed with Satan on that on that Ardmore, like, that's my phone that I failed to put back successfully. <laughs> the the Ardmore is, is a good drinker at a good price. The Blair Athol is a good drinker at a good price. The 31-year-old Scotchies, 750 uh, pounds a bottle, uh, maybe a little farther up there. Canvas 31 at 299, you can decide if that's in your wheelhouse. The Witch, which remains an absolute favourite of mine. Uh, the 19-year-old oh, Ardbeg at £550. We discussed it at the time. It kind of lives where Ardbeg currently lives. And then 225 for an 18-year-old Lechig. If I opened my wallet one day and £225 fell out, I would quite happily purchase that. You don't need to ask me my favourite of the four, do you, Joshua? I don't. I don't. <laughs> Any guesses what my favorite of the four is? The Benriach. Six, yeah. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. Easy breezy. Fruit. Right? It's all about the fruit. These are but great just stuff. think if you uh, But if you thought the Blair Athol was taking all of your Benriach boxes, you could buy the same, you know, fun flavor profile for ninety-five pounds. No, it was ticking the tasting notes. <laughs> This is ticking my experiential boxes. <laughs> so many boxes. It's a box to a box um, to another box. Pandora's box. to be getting out of here but have we drunk enough whiskey together for you to ask your your hot potato joshua i think we're primed we're I ready so um my question for you would be what you think the future is of auction houses for cask sales are you looking at me or are you looking at jess I'm just looking forward. Okay, I'm, I'm excited. For whichever the one you wants to receive internal that screaming. <laughs> um, where I work, we don't accept casks and we don't auction casks. Uh, there might be a change mm -hmm. for this in the future. Who knows? Uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting venue to go down to in auction houses, and you kind of see it. It's a lot of this being sold, but I really don't think that people understand everything around it and you guys talk about it all the time of if you have someone that they say you you want to buy a cask and they you have these cask investment firms it's going to be a market there a hundred percent they're always going to be a market for for these kind of things um mm -hmm. i think personally and this is me personally i think it's a bit of a shame because people don't understand what they're buying at all like when it comes down to bottles you know the bottles and you know the fill level you maybe have tried that bottle or you're gonna try it is one thing it's a lot of money to part away of you buying a cask and it's a lot of ifs around it which i don't think that people get um and also legal things around it i think the pricing of casks has gone quite high like obviously you guys talk about it from a totally different point of view but when you see guys as we were talking about earlier 
was the there is a thousand pounds is actually worth 350 and i think it's a bit of that mm. is over to casks as well people are saying but oh it's and i've seen it on facebook groups they're saying oh if we all club together it will only be 250 pounds for this bottle or for a bottle mm. and they don't mm. realize everything after that they haven't done the real maths. There are websites you can go to and they will tell you rough estimated prices of how much it's going to be. I think it's a very slippery slope to go down if you don't really know. And it's like everything. Do your homework, look into it. And if you think it's worth buying a cask, help yourself go and buy a cask and enjoy it. But if you don't know, don't trust your neighbour, whoever that might be, to say you should buy a cask. And go to auction and buy it. I think it's... Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, I think it's it's definitely going to be a market there. And it's a lot of people that want to own a cask. And they would go to auctions. And they will buy it. So I think it's always going to be there from now on. Because we have seen it happens. So I don't think it's going to... Mm. I don't think it's going to decrease. I think it's probably going to increase if it's something. You will see more on the market coming. But it won't be the prices that will the prices won't align with what people think it should be because of there's so much around costs yeah yeah sure i have so many rage points that as you were talking i was like oh yeah that's another good point i'd not <laughs> thought about from the start of it's one i think the basic premise of it's a gamble when you bid on a bottle in an auction you are buying these casks with no samples so that's my first problem. You have no idea. You're selling mm-hmm. it on a paper promise that it says Springbank on it and you're getting a fantastic Springbank cask. You have no idea the quality of what you're getting. Two, I know on a professional level that you can't just get your name shoved on a cask and the warehouse where it's stored will accept you. There are several very vocal warehouse keepers um, who provide these services in Scotland who are very angry about this happening where... I turn up one day and say, hi, I'd like to see my cask. And they're like, sorry, who are you? (laughs) Uh, Not all warehouses are accepting new random people to own a cask. I'm deeply suspicious of anybody bidding on a cask on the basis they think they're going to get a super delicious tinnick. What on earth do you personally Mm -hmm. want three or four hundred bottles for? Because you don't. And I think people don't understand you can't just turn up at your local bar or friendly retailer and say like, hey, I've got loads of these. Do you want to buy them? That there's repercussions there. I don't think people fully understand that the... And we would see it frequently enough in the auction that they only see the hammer price of the bottle. They then don't factor in this commission, delivery, local taxes. So that £100 bargain bottle could be closer to £200, maybe more, depending where you live when it arrives at your house. And mm-hmm. that's one bottle. Mm-hmm. So now we're looking at people who are possibly getting 300 bottles. Uh, they're not aware of the excise duty, the VAT, the bottling fees, the handling fees, and frankly, the storage space to have 300 bon- you know, 300-ish bottles turn up at your third floor walk-up tenement in Edinburgh. You know, there's, there's so much attached to this that I think isn't transparent and it's very easy to feed into people who desperately want to feel like they've got a, their own little slice of the industry and for rightly or wrongly, they want to be involved in it because they're part of a community and I don't think the practicalities of it are there you know I'm very worried that people are going to get very badly burned financially by what the implications of these things are and the kind of the 
rippling out effect of that is it damages my bit of the industry where we're selling bottles to people and we do sometimes buy casks from people, you know, and people get very confused. You know, one bad experience can quickly taint everything else. And we're in an age where it's very mm-hmm. easy to go online and write reviews when you're furious on review websites and Facebook mm-hmm. and social media and to get other people riled up into a snowballing effect. I, I think cask sales through auction are, I, and I'm going to say it, I think they're very dangerous to private individuals who are not fully informed as to what the effects of it are. But there, of course, there will be firms buying these casks yeah, as well. There it will may not be, be private individuals knowledge. bidding at auction. Maybe it is under independent bottlers. Maybe it's investment firms. Maybe it's groups of people who are very informed and aware yeah. of the costs they're about to undertake. But I think you have to protect people who are vulnerable. And so for me, that is people who are like, oh, I've heard that if I spend 10 grand on a cask of the Speyside Distillery, I can sell it this time next year for 100 grand because I read a newspaper yeah. article on it. And so in the meantime, yeah. that creates... Uh, definitely a rage point of ours about hyperinflated pricing across bottles and casks. It has a damaging effect far beyond just that one person who's now out of pocket 80 grand or in their head thought they were going to get 100 grand or... These are big numbers. We're in a, a very difficult time for people living. Nobody really has 10 grand to slosh around randomly. Yeah, and that's... That's what... like Something like this is very interesting and it's it's about having the knowledge, really. Like, in the end of the day, like, if you have 10 grand and you want to spend 10 grand, help yourself, but really read up on it, really understand what, you, what you're getting yourself yeah. into. And also, uh, as we all know, a leaky cask can get emptied very quickly. That's before we've even got to that. Right, exactly. Yeah, Whew, this turned dark quickly. I think <laughs> the safe answer is join a whiskey club, drink whiskey with your friends, mm-hmm. go to a whiskey... Uh, festival, try whiskies with your pals who maybe you wouldn't necessarily go to bar and buy a jam of it. Don't do the full jump into being like, I am gonna buy a whole cask of this at auction. Yeah. Does that succinct? Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm like fully raging now. I'm thinking about all these other rage points of it. But nobody yeah. wants to listen to a podcast of like, and at the end, the outtake is just Jess losing her shit for an hour. <laughs> and another thing. You're about to become second murderer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's why I'm the calming point of this whole conversation, bringing you back in. That's why I'm going back to these lovely samples, which I got all right. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. <laughs> all right. Uh... On that note, I, I think uh, I think it might be time to wrap up this conversation. Unless Jason, you had another question. If not, that's that's cool. No, uh, I was just going to say thanks ever so much for for these two joining us and tasting with us and being honest. Can't ask for more than that from anybody. Mm-hmm. So these mm-hmm. are conversations we have in Glasgow together, often at the Bon Accord over pints and drams. To get you on wax on this very topic has been really wonderful. So thank you both for making the time. Yeah, and thanks to Ollie for supplying these delicious whiskies. They are great. I would be very proud Indeed. of this if it's my release. Yeah, thank Indeed. you so Ollie, much, Case. And... Ollie and team. And team, of course. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Of beautiful whiskies. Um, so then I'll raise uh, my glass to you three, to our listeners, to Ollie and all the folks at Elixir Distillers. And, and Jess, you'd mentioned it before, or Jason, you just did. These are conversations we would have at the Bon Accord, and, and the Bon Accord is one man down. So I'm also raising this glass to, to Paul McDonough True. yet again. 
Uh, so, so, so cheers and uh, peace. L'chaim. I don't know. Skål. 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 Cheers. Skål. Click, click. Cheers. <laughs>